Welcome to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. This summer, we're walking through the book of Romans, taking a master class from the rich and powerful book of the New Testament. Romans is one of the greatest books of the Bible. It is the essence of the gospel and provides the rich doctrine of our faith. Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, and God has used it to change the hearts of men and ultimately the world. In Romans, we see the impact of our sin, which reveals our deep need for God, and then the importance of living out our faith in Jesus today. Whether a lifelong student of the Bible to a first-time believer, this is a masterclass for everyone. Let's listen in. We are in Romans chapter 3. Masterclass is the series that we're working through. We're working through the whole book of Romans. If you want to jump uh, to Romans chapter 3, that's in my Bible, that's page 967. I don't know if that will help you out at all. Uh, but, uh, you know, I just figured I'd help a little bit to give you that. Uh, and if you, maybe you have a, uh, an app on your phone or using the Rolling Hills app, you're going to fill out stuff there. Also, uh, there's notes, places to kind of fill out and follow along uh, in, on the back of that worship guide uh, there for you. So want to make sure that you um, are able just to kind of track with us what we're doing. Uh, Romans 3 is where we're going to be. And we're going to work through all 31 verses here of, of this chapter uh, and, and just kind of work through a little bit at a time. Uh, I, I want you to know as we jump into this passage that uh, as a church, kind of like this is where we're going to be. But as a church, we're, we're a church that believes the Bible is the word of God. Uh, we believe that the Bible is, 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 is that all of Scripture is God-breathed, meaning that, that it was written under the, under the direction and the inspiration of God by the Spirit, and that throughout Scriptures, uh, that they, throughout scriptures there's testimony to these facts, that this is God's Word. Uh, to, to quote another, uh, another pastor, we believe that God's Word is the in, excuse me, we believe that God in His wisdom and His grace at various times and in various ways revealed Himself declared his will and his truth, and therefore all of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, is necessary and essential for us as believers as we walk and for us to understand all of who God is, that all 66 of these books from Genesis to Revelation are exactly what God desires for us to have so that we can know all that he desires for us to know of who he is. Right and, so, and, and who he is and all that he's done and all that he is doing and will do, that, that there's nothing missing uh, from these scriptures. And I don't say that every week, but I do say it this week for this reason, because in Romans chapter 3, we're going to work through some things that are really going to sting a little bit. We're going we're gonna to read and work through a, pat, a passage of scripture that, honestly, if we let ourselves actually process what this passage says, it's going to sting a little bit. And on the other side, as you work through the first 20 verses, and then from 21 to 23, or 21 to 31, that not only is it, it, it continues, but it is some of the scripture that is honestly some of the, the greatest words in all of scripture. As, as, you, go to, as you turn to 21 to, to, to 31, uh, one pastor says that, this, that in, chapter, in verse 21 is, is one of the greatest transitions ever penned in all of literature. Martin Luther says that, it, that in the 16th, he's a 16th century pastor, theologian, reformer. Uh, he called this passage, Romans 3, specifically 21 through 31, he says that this is the center point of, of Paul's letter to the Romans, potentially the center point to all of Scripture. Another guy named Leon Morris, a New Testament scholar, says, says in his commentary on Romans that this paragraph, 21 through 31, is the most important paragraph in all 
history ever written. The most important paragraph ever written, not by, by, not by the, the authors of the scripture. He's saying that this could be, and he believes is, the most important paragraph, 31, or 21 through 31, ever written. And I believe that it is God's word. It's God's very word breathed out to us to know who he is and all that he's done and all that he wants to do and how he desires to rescue us and make us more like him. And so I, as, as I prepared this, honestly, it, 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 it caught my attention again. And I've read this passage, I can't tell you how many times, but it caught my attention again just how wonderful, how mind-blowing this passage is, what Paul writes to the Romans and, and what we get to understand about who God is and all that he's done from these verses. And so we're going to work through all of these verses, uh, little chunks at a time, as you can kind of see on your uh, worship guide. And so we'll read a little bit, and then we'll kind of talk a little bit about them and then uh, kind of work through. So I'm not going to read all 31 in one, one spot. We're going to read all of it kind of chunked up a little bit. But I'm going to start by just praying and asking God just to, to move in this moment and, and open our eyes to what he desires us to hear and understand from his word. So pray with me. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you've given us your word. God, that you've, you've inspired and directed the authors of scripture to write these things so that we could know who you are. Know all that you desired us to know about you. All that, you des all that you've done, all that you're doing, all that you desire for us to know about what you're going to do is found in these, in these words that make up these 66 books in the Bible. And God, I pray that in this moment, as we work through this chapter in Romans, that God, you would meet us here and open our eyes to the truth that's found in this word. That which stings and could, and could hurt a little bit, but also that which gives life and is the best news, the greatest news that we could ever hear. It's in Christ strong and mighty name that we pray. Amen and amen. So if you have your Bibles again, Romans chapter 3, and, and really what we've looked at so far as we've worked through the first three books or first three chapters of Romans, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1 forward, Paul has been building this case. He's been done a great job of establishing this logical argument and building a case for his readers and then by proxy for us. And, and what happens through verse 20 in this chapter, he's going to make his final push in this argument. Right, he's going to make this fun as the net has just gotten bigger and bigger in chapter 1. Hey, if you're a sinner, if you're just kind of rebellious, the net's there. If you're religious, you're falling under. And he's like, and if you think that you have, if you've escaped somehow from all of that, he's going to just kind of make this one last pick to say, everybody's in the net. Everybody's here together. And it's kind of a side note is this, he makes this, uh, this logical argument and kind of works it down this, uh, this, works this logical way through these, through these questions and whatnot. And to be completely transparent, I was very thankful for some commentaries that kind of helped, helped kind of paint a picture and understand a little more what was happening because my little Cajun swamp brain uh, was not working so well in understanding this logical argument. I'm like, man, you got to mix it up a little bit more for me for, to understand it. But it, one of the things that I found out as I was reading through or kind of studying is that, that this argument, Paul's letter to the Romans in the first hundred years of Harvard Law School was, was required reading, was required study for first year students. 
because of the way that Paul masterfully puts together this argument and masterfully kind of works through this logical argument. And so first-year students for the first hundred years of Harvard Law read Romans as a way to understand how to make a logical argument. And in this last 20 verses of chapter, or the first 20 verses of chapter 3, he's making his last push. And he starts by this. He says, what advantage? He's talking to his Jewish audience. He says, what advantage then is there for being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? And when he talks about circumcision, really he's saying like the whole law of God, right? Not just the act, but that's the whole law of God. Verse 2, he says, how much in every way? First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. Again, I was, I'm very thankful for some folks that have kind of helped to understand what's going on in here because I, I was a little lost in, in what he meant and kind of in this last push. But one pastor says this, that the Jews, that especially the Jews that he was writing to, had some, ju- and, and with some justification, they felt like they were God's chosen people. And so they stood in a special relationship with God because of that. And part of that is certainly true. Right? The Jews were God's chosen people, and God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. In fact, it's th- these facts that are true, but it, it does not negate the reality of their sinful position before God. And so you continue. So Paul, what Paul's saying is, that, and, and if you want to fill this out, there's advantage and there's responsibility. There's advantage in being a Jew, and there's responsibility in that. We don't have time to, to kind of work. I mean, honestly, we could spend a, a sermon on each of these breakdowns. But, but, but really just what, what he's saying really for this is the advantage is that you are God's chosen people. The responsibility is that God gave you his word. And therefore, you knew what you were responsible for. And yet you failed. That the responsibility is that you were supposed to live as Jewish people a life that glorified him and in such a way that the nations around you would know that he is God. But you didn't. You ran to other gods just like the other nations. And so, yes, there is an advantage. But there's also responsibility. And you dropped the ball. And he keeps going. And he kind of makes that indictment on the Jews that he's writing to. But he keeps going. Verse 3 says, What if some were unfaithful? Would their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Verse 4, not at all. Let God be true in every human being a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Here Paul's making this point, and you want to fill this out, that God remains faithful regardless of our faithfulness. And here's what he's saying, right? You drop the ball. Jews, is you, you're, yeah, do, do I have any advantage? Yes, you have an advantage. You're God's people, but you also have responsibility. It's to carry, it's to live in such a way that everybody else sees that. And you drop the ball, right? But God is faithful regardless of your faithfulness. Is what Paul's saying here. And he's, he's going to, as he continues through this argument, he's like, listen, you did have a responsibility. You dropped the ball, but God remains faithful even when you messed up. And he didn't give up on you. Even though you sought hope and joy and peace in lots of other places, when God chose you to be his special people and put his blessing on you, you dropped the ball, but he was faithful and and he didn't give up on you. I mean, look back through scripture. You see men like David and, uh, and, and Abraham and Moses, all of these individuals, the whole nation of Israel, but God continued to be faithful to his promises even when they were not faithful to him. 
And here's what, I, and then he didn't give up on them. And here, I, honestly, I, maybe, maybe this is the only thing you need to hear this morning. Listen, some of us are in that place where we just need to be reminded that God is faithful regardless of the fact that we've been faithless. And he's not given up on you. And maybe you're thinking, you're thinking I've, I felt like I had a lot of responsibility. Maybe you trusted Christ at a young age and you've, you, you, you had a lot of responsibility. You knew God's word, but you've dropped the ball at somewhere along the way. And listen, your faithlessness does not negate God's faithfulness. And he's not done with you. He's calling you back to himself. To say, I want to be restored with you and I want to have a relationship. Maybe that's just what we need to hear, that, we need to, that, that God has called us. He calls us his own, and he desires to be with us even though we've dropped the ball. But we need to keep moving. Verse 5, it says this. But if, but if our righteousness brings out God's righteousness, he's continuing this logical argument, right? But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. That's Paul in parentheses. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? And he has to judge the world because he's God, right? Verse 7, someone might, someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so, and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, so why not say, as some slanderous, slanderously claim that, that we say, let's do evil that good may result? Their, condemn, their condemnation is just. And so here, here's the next thing that, we, that Paul's saying, and I want you to write this down, that sinfulness is always, or sin is always sinful. Sin is always sinful. What Paul's saying to, the, to the, those that he's writing to that are making this kind of foolish argument is there's no way to paint over the fact that you can't cover up that sin is sin. Sin's awful, it's absurd, it's unthinkable, it's, it's a blasphemous rebellion against a, of, of creation against the creator. It's you and I foolishly rejecting God, foolishly saying, rejecting his goodness and his righteousness, his justice, his love, and his sovereign rule of our, over our lives. It's us rejecting his way and his commands and his plans and saying that we have better plans. And it's always sinful. And that's that kind of foolish argument that if, 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 if we just sin more, then God looks more glorious. He's like, no, your sin is always sin. And God is always just in condemning your sin. God is always just in, ju in judging our sin. Sin is sin. There's no, there, there's no big and small sin. All sin is sin. And sin is what sent Jesus to the cross. Sin is the reason that Jesus had to come. And no matter how we try to spin it, sin is always sinful. And the second thing that he's trying to make, make clear here is that attempting to justify, if you want to write this down, attempting to justify sin is a human specialty. Attempting to justify our sin is a human specialty. It runs deep. We all justify our sin. Just have a conversation with, with your kid. Uh, uh, wives, you may have had conversations with your husbands, and some of them are right. <laughs> Probably not. <clears throat> we all justify, right? We all try to tell you why we're right. Kids try to tell us why they're right. We always want to justify the reasons why what we're saying. We want to shift the blame to say that it's somebody else's fault. And this goes way back. 
It's, it's part of, it's this thing that we've, we, we can't, it's so hard to shake because it goes way back to the very beginning. It goes way back to, to chapter 3 of Genesis, and it's there in the, in the Garden of Eden. It's the very first thing that Adam, when, when God comes to Adam and says, who, who did this? What, what happened here? And Adam says, it's that woman you gave me. And since then, dudes, we've been doing it. It's her. It was her fault that I did all of these bad things. And then she was like, no, it was that snake. And the snake is wicked. Snakes are wicked, and they will make you do bad things, like chop their heads off. But, that, but the truth is that we've always been those who, just, who want to justify and shift blame. And every one of us, since the very beginning, have done this. We point, we point a finger, and it started with Adam and Eve, but it didn't stay in the garden. It continues in our homes and our workplaces. And attempting to justify our sin is a human specialty. And we keep, keep going, picking up in verse 9. It says, from, from the very beginning, Paul has been slowly removing this ground that we stand on, right? And at this point, this is where he's really going to push in hard. He's kind of said it through the first eight verses. But right here in verse 9, he's really going to push in hard. He's going to make it this final push to make sure that everyone understands that we might think we might think that we have it right, but he's going to make sure that we clearly understand that no one is righteous, if you want to fill this out, that no one is righteous, that all are sinners, and that everyone is lost. And so stick with me because this is honestly the place where it gets real sticky. It's going to get real, real, real thick here for just a second. It says in verse 9, it says, What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. Meaning, or excuse me, verse 10, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. So what he means when he says under the power of sin and, and our unrighteousness, that, 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 that under the power of sin and the word unrighteous are kind of the same thing. You could use the same words there that you're under the power of sin and that you're unrighteous. And this is kind of a, a positional statement, a legal term, that this is where you sit. It's almost like Paul is saying, your citizenship is in unrighteousness. Your citizenship is, is in under sin. Like if, if, if where am I as, as, as somebody who doesn't have a relationship with Christ, where am I? I'm under sin. I'm in sin. Right? Sin goes before me, behind me. This is the place that I find myself. I'm surrounded by it. Tim Keller, uh, author and pastor, says your passport is stamped in sin or under sin. As if this is the place that you live. All of us. No matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've done or not done, all of us have. Jew, Gentile alike. All of us are in this boat. And it's astounding, this statement. Everyone, the religious and the unreligious, are all in the same place. But listen, I want you to hear what I'm, what, what this, it, we did say that there's no little sin and big sin or that all are sin and all are sinful. But that doesn't mean that all of us have the same degree of sinfulness, right? Like some of us, we look at our lives and you're like, man, there, there's, we're not all marred in the same, we all are marred by sin and we can't do anything to rescue ourselves. But, but we look at our society and we look around and yes, we can judge ourselves against others and say, well, I'm not as bad as them. And you may be right. But all of us are under sin. One of the illustrations that I read this week is that if you've got three people, three people that, that uh, are in, in Hawaii, and I don't know why Hawaii is the, the place that they put it, but makes makes sense, right? You say they, they're going to swim to the mainland 
right? They're going to swim over to California. You got three people, one that's just, you know, not, not physically well, right? They jump in the water and they make it just a little bit offshore and, and they're, they're done. They're, they, don't have, they don't have it to get across. Second person, a little more physically fit. They've actually swam a little bit. They, they know what they're doing and they make it a little bit farther. Maybe they make it a mile and a half, two miles even. That's pretty good. It's a long way. But they get tired and they're done. And the third person is like a, a, a gold medalist, right? They long distance swimming, if that's a, an event in the Olympics. And they make it 30 miles off the coast. And it doesn't really matter that they made it 30 miles, the other made it two, and one made it 100 yards. All of them had the same ending. Yeah, you may be better than the first, maybe better than one of the others, but we all are in the same place. We're all under sin. We're all in sin. Sin is what is what embodies it, and, and, and we're all in the place to it not. There's not a degree of lostness. All of us are without hope, and we're all begging for a rescue. And he continues. He's going to say that to the very core of who we are in verses 18 or 11 through 18, he's going to show us just how this sin has affected every aspect of our, every aspect of our life. Verse 11, he says that there is no one who understands, no one seeks God. All have turned away and together have become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. And you're like, wait a minute. I, I know some people who have done some good things and they're not Christians, right? They've never even stepped into the church. And I, I, listen, I'm not saying that people haven't done good things that aren't Christians. I'm just saying that there's, that deep down they're broken just like everybody else. And that there's nothing that they've ever done that's not touched at least at some level with that brokenness. And that there's nothing that they can do that's good enough to rescue them from the position that they find themselves in. Even our good is still marked, is still tainted by the, by, is still infected by sin. Verses, verse 13, it says, their throats are like open graves. Their tongue practices deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their way. The way of peace is not known to them. And so, so far, this is what he said, right? He says that every part of our lives have been thoroughly saturated by sin. Legally, our position, our standing before God is sinful. That's what it says in verse 10. Our mind and our motives have been marred by sin. That's what it says in verse 11. Our will has been marred by sin. That's what it says in verse 12. Our tongue and our words are marred by sin. That's what it says in verse 13 and 14. And our relationships with others has been marred and broken by sin. That's what it says in 15 through 17. And finally, in verse 18, our relationship with God, he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And with this list that he, that he, that he set down, he sits down like a boulder on our chest, exposing just how deep and desperate our, our situation in. Paul continues. Inside of all this to argue, all, all of this as we stand silent to say there is no argument, there's nothing that we can come back. He says this, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. And therefore no one can be declared righteous in God's sight by the work of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of that sin. He just says, listen, Everyone under, needs to understand the weight of where you're at. 
I mean, this was the final push. Through verse 20, he is making sure that everyone in this room knows. Everyone that's going to read this knows. Because I know us. And they're like, yeah, but not me. Right? Yeah, not me. I, I'm not in the same spot. No, listen. Every one of us needs to feel the weight of this. And some of you do. Some of you understand the weight of it. Some of you need to understand the weight of it because you need to understand the weight to understand what happens next. Because in verse 21, this is that transition. This is that moment. This is the the greatest transition in all of literature. This is the paragraph that is the most important paragraph in all that that has ever been written. It begins with these two words. Verse 21, it says, but now. Currently, since Jesus came, we have a different story. But now, if you're filling out this, you're filling out your worship guide, but now, write that in in all capital letters, you need to know, but now, the most important transition in all of Scripture right here, but now, apart from the law, a righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus, in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is, there, there is no difference between Jew or Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by the grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. And he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so, that he, so, that, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Buckle up, because honestly, what, we, what we're going to switch gears here to do is talk about some big boy issues. These are big boy and girl conversations. I mean, what's happening in, in, in Romans as he makes this turn, this, this important, this, this chapter, this paragraph right here, 21 through 31, there's big, big kid stuff happening right here. And then there's kind of five key foundational truths that are found in this passage that I really think that we need to work through in the, in the, the short time that we have left. And, and honestly, we're going to use some words that are big words and, and listen, I know, I, I believe in you guys. Small swamp brain, right? You, I can understand this to some extent. You guys can understand this. You guys understand big concepts, and this is, these are big, concept, big concepts that we're going to work through. And, and because I believe that, that, that a lot of us, a lot of Christians in general, have, have a weak understanding of some of these foundational doctrinal things. And I think that makes us weak Christians in moments that we face trials. But, but strong doctrine creates strong Christians. Strong understanding of, of the truth of God's word creates strong Christians. And so we're going to talk about some of those strong things for the last little bit that we have here in these five key foundations truths of doctrine are first this, the doctrine of justification. If you want to write this down, justification. Justification is a big word, right? And it's essential, like this is one of the central doctrines of our Christian faith. 
Martin Luther called the doctrine of justification or, or, or justification the cornerstone to Christianity. J.L. Packer says that any church that lapses in an understanding of justification by faith scarcely should be called a Christian church. And so going back to talking about this earlier, when we talk about what we do is we are, we are we're really good at justifying ourselves. Right? And so the word justification often kind of sparks up this idea of us justifying ourselves, of us trying to say, no, we're right, or kind of arguing our point as to what the reasons why we're right, meaning we're always trying to excuse what we did or, or said and, and, and kind of push it off. But justification in the biblical sense is, a diff, is much different. To justify something means to declare it not guilty. That something that is innocent Something that is guilty becomes innocent and righteous in the eyes of the law. That something that was guilty, that, that is guilty, it stands guilty, is looked upon in the eyes of the law and says, you were guilty, but I'm declaring you justified and righteous. That that which was true about you a moment ago is no longer true about you now. It's a positional statement. It's, it's the, just as, as the positional statement earlier that, that you were under sin. Now he's saying that there's something different about this, just about who you are. You're positionally in a different place. It does not mean to make righteous or to clean up. It means to declare something as righteous. It means to look at somebody that is guilty and declare that they are no longer guilty that they are innocent, they are righteous, and they are free to go. The record against them has been wiped away. A more technical definition of this is this, that justification is that divine miracle whereby God declares righteous the sinner who believes in Jesus. So listen, there's a couple things that, that, that justification is a miracle of God. Some of you have said, well, I would just love to see a miracle. Listen, we see them all the time when people put their faith in Jesus and God says somebody who was a sinner is now declared righteous. It is a miracle of God. Justification is not an experience. It doesn't matter how you feel about your justification. It is a declaration of who you are. It moves you in position to what you were to who you are. Nobody is halfway justified or partly justified. You are justified Everyone in this room is justified just like everybody else who have put their faith in Jesus. There's not somebody who's more justified than somebody else. Anybody who's put their faith in Jesus are the same amount justified, which sounds weird to say it that way. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, you are justified just like every other believer. Now, there, there is a difference, and there's, there's another word. This is not the, the process. Justification is not the process of becoming righteous, the process of becoming more like God and becoming and living a life that is more and more obedient, right? We talk about that. That's a word, a different word. We don't have space in, in, in our conversation today to talk about it, but it's the word called sanctification. That's the process of becoming holy. You may want to write that out to the side. Justification is the moment that you put your faith in Jesus. God's spirit comes to live inside of you and God declares you right. And then from then on, we're in a process of becoming who he's declared us to be. 
Justification means that you are completely forgiven. Justification means that you have a new righteousness, a righteousness that's been given to you by someone else, that someone else is the one who has been righteous, that God's righteousness is now laid on you. And you are no longer in sin, right? Your, your stamp on your passport no longer says in sin or under sin. Now it says in righteousness and under grace. You've been transformed. You've been moved from the citizenship of sin to the citizenship of righteous. How beautiful a picture. And so that's why it's absurd for us to walk back and to live in sin when you're like, no, you now live in righteousness. Your life, you are now righteous because God's declared you this way. And you go back and you wonder in this foolishness over here in sin. He says, no, I've given you something new. Something better than that over there. That's no longer your home, your home, your place, your position is righteous. But we don't see ourselves that way. And so we continue to live in ways that are not fitting for who we are. It's too much. We got to keep going. Justification means that you have been declared not guilty and that you can never Again, be condemned. Never again. Who can condemn? Who can stand against God's righteous? Who can stand against God, those who God has declared righteous? No one. No one can condemn you. Because God has declared you something that you weren't before and now you are. Justification means that we can stop our struggle to try to make ourselves right. We can rest in the fullness of who God is and what he's done for us. And we can have peace and hope and joy because of what he's done for us. The second, we got to, ooh, we got to move. Second one is redemption. It says in verse 24, it says, and all who are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. You've been redeemed. The price has been paid in full for your life. His life was paid for your life. His blood was poured out on a cross that, that it was all that needed to be poured out to purchase your life back. To be redeemed, you and I, to redeem you and I, he purchased us back from the effects of sin on our lives. The third word, the third kind of big word there is propitiation. I couldn't spell it on my own. I had to look it up. So that's why it's there on the screen for you. In the, in the NIV, the, what we've read this morning, it says, it says the sacrifice of atonement, right? Some translations that you, you might read it says the word expiation, right? Which means the wiping away of the wrongdoing. But other translations uh, use the word propitiation because it, what it does is it includes expiation. That other word meaning wiping away. But it also expands to mean a little more than that because it means not only the wiping of the wiping away of it, but God has turned away his righteous anger that we deserved for that sin. He's turned away from us and he placed it on somebody else. That God poured out all of the punishment that we deserved for our sin on someone else. And that someone else was Jesus that he laid him on the cross. And when he said, it is finished on the cross, what Jesus was saying is that all the price has been paid for the penalty of sin, that all humanity 
had laid up for themselves. He poured it out. And so now he turned that wrath against because he had poured it out completely on the son. I don't have time for this. That means God's not mad at you anymore. We live, so many of us live in this place of shame where we think God's just constantly mad at us. That's impossible because he poured out all of his wrath on Jesus. All of his anger poured out on Jesus. He can't be angry with you any longer if you've put your faith in him. The, the, the way that he looks at you is as a father who lovingly wants to be with you for all of your life. He cannot be. He cannot look at you. And I'm, I know, again, I know because I know what the enemy says. I know he says it to my son. I know he says it to some of you in this room right now. That doesn't, he's not talking to you. No, I'm talking to you. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you pile up and say, no, no, I, he can't look at me that way. I'm telling you, if you put your faith in Jesus, it's the only way God looks at you. The last thing is that it's by grace. It has nothing to do with what you've done. Praise the Lord. It's not a dang thing that you've done can in any way assist one fragment to what God has done for you. From beginning to end, it was him. That's why we sing the songs that we sing. That's why we celebrate what God did because it's nothing that we've done. You can't contribute to it. If you try to, you fail. That's why Jesus came and did what he did. That results are, this is the fifth thing in humility, verse, verses 27 through 30. Listen to what it says. Where then is boasting? It's excluded because of, what, because of what law? The law that requires works. No, because the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or so God, so, or is God the God of Jews only? He is not only the, is he not, on, not, not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who justifies the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Where is your boasting? We don't have anything to boast in because he did it all for us. In all of creation, God's people should be the most humble because we understand he's done everything for us. There's no room for pride in the church, not with each other and not outside of here because we didn't do anything to save us. He did it all. And we get to invite other people to experience that same grace that we've experienced, that we didn't do anything to earn because he paid for it. This passage deserves way more than I can give it. 
This week, though, in our, master, in, in our journal, in our, in our reading, even if you don't have the journal, which I encourage you to grab, uh, even if you don't have the journal, you can read through all this week. We're going to be reading through. And I believe that what God does when you sit down and open up his word is that he meets you there. And I want to encourage you to sit down and read through this passage in Romans chapter 3 and just let God meet you and open your eyes to the truth of what his word says in this most incredible of passages. I'm going to pray for us, and as I pray, I'm going to invite the band to come, out, come up. And, and then we're going to take communion this morning because it's the perfect reminder in this passage of what, what Christ did for us. Let me, let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you so much for what you've done. and God, the opportunity, the small ways that we get to celebrate it and the songs that we sing and opening up your word as you remind us of, your, of the salvation that you purchased for us that you have declared us right. You have done it, not us. We thank you for it. We pray that you would open our eyes to exactly what you have done on our behalf. And it's amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Share this episode with friends and family in your life. Make sure you subscribe to be notified so you never miss a sermon. If you are interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.